I was sitting in the kitchen, reading my Bible, drinking my cup of coffee, when Good Morning America comes on the TV. And uh, forgive me, I don't know their names. I'm sure y'all do. I don't watch a lot of GMA as they call it nowadays, right? But they were talking about Friday was apparently the national day of I love you. So I got to hear the, the, the story of these people and their love story, how they came to be, how they fell in love, all that, right? And I just thought to myself, wasn't last week like National Sun Day, the week before National Daughter Day, the week before National Three Dogs and a Cat Day? Like what? Who is making up these days? And I, and I want to find out, and I have two questions for them. Number one, how do I get on that committee? Because I want to be a part of that decision-making process. And number two, can they create a Sheridan Day, a day of Sheridan? And let's just wake up one morning, post it to Facebook, get all everybody to share it, right? And we'll have a day of, uh, we'll have a day of Sheridan, right? That sounds awful, even as I said it. Like, that's, ugh. But uh, this morning, you know, and not just today, but really the whole month of October, about five or six years ago, to my knowledge, it crept up that the month of October is Pastor Appreciation Month. Pastor Appreciation Month. And so this morning, I would just like to express my appreciation for the pastors, the elders who are in this room. Um, I, would, I would name names and all that, but truly... To say that I serve on a staff where this church, this calling, this vocation that we have is more than just let's wake up, let's get the work done, and let's go home and, and spend the rest of our days doing whatever we want. Like I serve on a church staff that we love each other, we care for each other, and not only for, for us who are on the staff, but also for the church as a whole. Y'all, this is... We are so blessed, and, and not because of Evan Sheridan, it's not me. We're so blessed to serve alongside men such as Kyle York and, and Aaron LaRue and, and our elder body, and, and even to have our pastoral interns, Austin and Moses, and to have men who have retired from ministry and, and still serving in the church today. Like We are so blessed here at Harvest. And so to all, to all, the, to all the folks who served our service pastors, let me just express my profound appreciation to you, truly, truly. Harvest Church is blessed uh, because of your service and because of your calling to the Lord. And you may say, Evan, you know, that's, that's good, um, but it's actually relevant for today's message. It's relevant to the whole message of Galatians. If you have your Bible, go ahead and get there to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We are continuing our walk through the book of Galatians. Today we will be in the 21st verse of chapter 4, going all the way to the first verse of chapter 1. And this morning, it's, it's a sobering truth that not all who preach and teach the Word of God do so out of an authentic calling or a sincere conviction, but do so for their own benefit. It is a sobering reality to know that there are men who gain the pulpit only to tout their opinions as being the equivalent to the Word of God. They would heap burdens upon the shoulders and backs of their listeners, burdens that the gospel itself does not require of them. Such men who preach false gospels are accursed, and they will get their just reward in all in due time. So this is what we're looking at in the church of Galatia. False teachers have infiltrated the church 
at Galatia, twisting the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are requiring the Gentile believers of the church to engage in circumcision and to observe Jewish customs and festivals as a means of completing their own salvation. But Galatians 3, verses 10-11, through 11, Paul wrote, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The matter of our salvation is not one that Jesus starts and we finish. It's also not one that we start and He finishes. The matter of our salvation is one that begins and ends in Jesus Christ. There is nothing we can add to it, and thankfully, thankfully, there is nothing we can do to take away from it. And so what we are going to see this morning is the Apostle Paul is going to use a familiar story from the book of Genesis to draw a distinction between those who are seeking to be justified by the law and those who are, who are justified by Christ. The story of Hagar and Sarah. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, reads, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is, Mount, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, verse 27, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, for the way that you speak through it to us. for the way you use it to mold us and fold us into who you desire us to be, for the way you use it to cut deep into our hearts and correct us. Thank you. 
Lord, I pray that during our time together this morning, you would give us ears that hear and eyes that see. Lord, I pray that we would give special attention to your word this morning, for it is your word that matters above all else. Lord, I speak as a broken vessel that you would, by your word, make yourself known this morning. May Jesus Christ be magnified. May the gospel be proclaimed. And Lord, may all of us who hear be drawn closer to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And amen. For the sake of clarity this morning, I want to divide our sermon into two points. And uh, there's, there's a quippy little saying about sermons with two points. Dr. John Gibson of the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary used to say it. It's probably not original with him, but he's the one who said it to me. And he used to say that uh, two-point sermons were like longhorn steer. Now, if you've ever been to Texas, you know what a longhorn steer looks like. They're that big giant bull, and they got two giant horns, and they, got, and they stick way out like this, and they come forward like this. You don't ever want to be poked by one, okay? But he used to say that two-point sermons are like longhorn steer. They've got two points with a lot of bull in between. And so we have a two-point sermon this morning. And the first of our two points this morning is this. The children of the slave relying upon their own works, will not inherit eternal life. The children, let me say that again for those who write notes. The children of the slave, relying upon their own works, will not inherit eternal life. Paul begins with, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the story of Hagar and Sarah, then let me give you the Spark Notes version of the story. God tells Abram, or who will become Abraham, that he will have a son who shall be his heir. This is in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 16, Sarai, or Sarah, we come to know her as, who had not given birth to any children yet, sought to take matters into her own hands by offering one of her servants, an Egyptian woman named Hagar, to become Abram's other wife. This is Genesis 16, verse 3. And Hagar is going to become pregnant, and things are going to go south for Hagar and Sarah, for the servant woman began to look upon the free woman with contempt. Sarah's wrath is going to fall upon Hagar. She is going to flee only for her to return to Sarah and Abraham. Genesis 16 verse 15 says, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. It is this Ishmael whom the Lord said to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Thirteen years later, after these events, in Genesis chapter 17, the Lord says to Abram, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is Genesis 17, the first seven verses. From there, from there the sign of circumcision is given, picking up in Genesis 17:15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, or Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but, your, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. This is Genesis 17, verses 15 through 21. If you think that's the end of our time in the Old Testament this morning, well, I've got some news for you. It's not, although we're going to pause there for a moment to make sure that we're all keeping up. Genesis 15, God promises Abraham a son whose offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. Genesis 16, Sarah takes matters into her own hands by handing Abraham a servant for him to have a child by. This child's name is Ishmael. He is going to be born not as a result of the promise of God, but by the scheming of the flesh. It isn't until 14 years later, after Ishmael is born, that Isaac, the child of promise, is brought into the world. Picking up in Genesis 21, uh, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So at the weaning of Isaac, a teenage Ishmael, doing teenage things, this is common for teenagers all throughout history, right, is going to laugh in mockery and jeer. Uh, I tend to lean towards he's laughing and mocking Sarah, some think Isaac's probably both, to be honest with you, but he's going to laugh in mockery, and it's going to get him and his mother cast out of Abraham's household into the wilderness. If I could just, as an aside here, teenagers, your actions matter. Okay? Just before you talk back to mom and dad this afternoon, your actions matter. Okay? And Abraham, by the way, is, is going to be so stressed out over this. Genesis 21, verses 12 through 14 says, God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, 
and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Hagar and Ishmael are going to come close to dying in the wilderness, but the Lord is faithful and provides for them. So now, when we read Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 to 23, where it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise, we can understand a bit better the context to what he's referring to. Now, how does Paul address the people he is going to identify as children of the slave woman? Let's continue in verses 24 and 25. He says, now this may be interpreted, or interpreted, interpreted. <laughs> Woo! Y'all thought I knew English. Come on now. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. There's another big word there. Be careful. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. I, I find it so compelling that Paul takes the story of Hagar and Sarah and uses it to make a driving point about the differences between the Judaizers and the Christians. The Judaizers whose schemes are born and acted upon in the flesh are the inheritors of the covenant of the slave woman. Those who would justify themselves by the mutilation of their own bodies would be enslaved, don't miss this, to that which they think would set them free. The reason we know that these Judaizers are the ones who are the offspring of Hagar, according to the story, according to Paul's point here, is by Paul's mentioning here of the present day Jerusalem the Jewish crown city, the pride and joy of the Israelite people. Every single Jew feels a cultural tug back to the city of Jerusalem. It was their central place of worship. And Paul points to it and says the words, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Why? For she is in slavery with her children. Jesus, when he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, said this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's John chapter 4, 21-24. This concept of the present day, and this is Paul's present time, right? Present day Jerusalem is one that's not of freedom nor of righteousness, but of slavery. Which is really for Paul to say that those who adhere to the strict requirements of keeping the letter of the law are indeed denying the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ by pursuing righteousness by their own flesh that they are really enslaved to their desires that they are not truly free. They are children of the slave. Could you imagine the offense in the room as the uh, reader of the Galatian letter read this aloud to the churches? You could, you could imagine the Judaizers in the room, in the back of the room most likely, kind of starting to sweat a little. He's telling us that I'm actually, my descent as a Jew is one of slavery and not freedom. 
I mean, this is a very serious uh, accusation that Paul is saying here. And I'll tell you, it is the same for us today who seek to justify ourselves in the sight of God by our own works. I, I, I don't think anyone here of, is trying to justify themselves on the basis of circumcision as the Judaizers would have, right? Right? But the real question for us today is, are there things we have done or are doing that we are using, attempting to use to justify or to make us right before God? Go ask any person who isn't a Christian who, who still holds to an afterlife of some sort, and they will tell you that they are going to heaven because they are a good person. They will tell you of how they have morally good lifestyles, how they haven't lied that much, uh, how they haven't stolen that much, how they haven't killed anybody, and they will walk away and they will say, I am a good person and therefore God is going to let me in. They find themselves justified, or so they think, by their good deeds. The issue with it here is that assuming you are justified by work is assuming that your work, or your works even, is good enough to justify you against the weight of your sin. For, and for us to go there, we have to understand the seriousness of the weight of our sin. The Apostle Paul, over in the book of Romans, is going to spend three chapters dealing with the subject of sin. And in the third chapter he wrote, after condemning the sins of the Gentiles, by the way, he wrote, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know, Paul continues, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 21. The righteousness of God comes not from the adherence of the law, but from the grace of God in Christ Jesus to those who believe. The stain and sting of sin too deep, too serious for the good actions of sinners to somehow cast it off. I grew up in the age of Axe body spray. Some of you are like, all right. Some of you are like, oh, all right, I know where he's going with this. As the Marine Corps Junior ROTC all four years of high school, we would have PT Tuesdays and Thursdays every week. And I'm telling you right now, it was not a pleasant experience after physical training to go into the locker room where a bunch of teenage boys refusing to shower were coating themselves 
and Axe Body Spray. See, they would think Axe Body Spray is this like really cheap cologne. That it's advertised as a deodorant, but it doesn't deodorize. It just, I don't know, it does something else. It does something awful. But these teenage boys, and I was guilty of it at one time too as a freshman, okay, I learned my lesson, would coat themselves in Axe Body Spray trying to mask the must of their sweat. And so what you would have is this weird mixture of sweat and Axe body spray and normal ways that teenage boys stink anyway, all mixed together. And they would walk out of the locker room proud of their new smell, thinking that the girl at six period is going to love this. And they sit next to the girl at six period. This happens to me as well. And you just see her get up and move away. The stench was unbearable. Them trying to cover up their sweat and their must, their musk, I think I've been saying that wrong, the word wrong the entire time now, um, but their musk was just awful. Y'all, this is what our good deeds look like when we're trying to justify ourselves before a righteous God. You're not getting rid of the stain of your sin by your own good deeds. That doesn't cleanse you, it doesn't purify you, and it certainly does not forgive you. It just makes you a weird mixture of a person who has a stench of death on them with the masking of good deeds in their life. And that ends in eternal death. Truly, the only way for the bondage of sin to be broken in our lives, for us to be cleansed and forgiven of our sin, is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was crucified on our behalf, and that by believing in Him, we would not perish from the eternal consequences of our sin, but rather that we would have the forgiveness of sins and have eternal life in Christ and in Christ alone. That is what we as believers bank on when we say we're going to heaven. It is not because of me, it is because of Him. It is not because of my good deeds, it's because of His work upon the cross. And is it not one day that I will share my, shed my blood for my sins because Jesus Christ has shed His blood on my behalf? Can somebody in the room say amen? Come on. If you are banking your salvation on something other than the grace of God in Christ Jesus to those who believe, then you are not free. You are enslaved. A child of the slave woman, not a child of the promise of salvation. I didn't mean to get fired this morning. I apologize. Speaking of the children of promise, let's go there. Picking up verse 26. <clears throat> but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time he, was born, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Which brings us to our second point, final point this morning. The children of the promise, entrusting in the grace of Christ, will inherit eternal life. Let me say that again for those who are taking notes. 
the children of the promise, and trusting in the grace of Christ, will inherit eternal life. Paul cites our crown city as believers is not the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly one. He even goes as far as to say that the Jerusalem from above is our mother. It is not a stretch to say when looking at this text that those who believe in Christ are children of God, which is sort of the whole point of Galatians 4, right? Verses 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The children of God will inherit eternal life. And this is despite our present circumstances. This is despite earthly wisdom. For beginning in verse 27, it says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul quotes here from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, in which the overarching context of Isaiah 54 is the Lord's promise to redeem his people. Uh, so he quotes from Isaiah 54, 1, where the logic is sort of turned on its head. Now, now don't hear me wrong. Children are a joy and a blessing from the Lord. Psalm 127 does say, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. But the coming reward, the coming reward, the coming joy of being children is so much so that even those who do not have children will be able to genuinely, authentically rejoice. Our prize as believers in Christ, regardless of our earthly circumstances, y'all, is the inheritance of life in heaven. The, the reality of our present circumstance in Christ, the guarantee of eternal life, is far greater, far better than any of the earthly blessings that we can experience in this life. This isn't to say that kids aren't great, but it is to say that the inheritance of the Christian is far, far better. Paul turns his attention to the believers. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. He states it plainly that there will be no confusion. Those who are operating according to the law in a way that would see them justified before God are actually enslaved to it and are children of the servant woman. But the children of the promise are those who profess faith in Christ. And the children of the slave, by the way, if it doesn't surprise you or if you haven't thought about it, let me, just let me tell you, the children of the slave hate the children of the promise. Ishmael would mock Isaac in Genesis 21.9. And this is the reference of Paul in verse 29 when he says, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. The Ishmael, in this case, being the Judaizers who are seeking to bring the Galatian believers under the weight of the law again. Those born of the flesh persecute those who are born of the Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 30 in Galatians 4 then says, But what does the scripture say? 
cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. This, of course, being cited from Genesis 21, verse 10, then on to verse 31 in Galatians 4. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Again and again, Paul exhorts the Galatians to submit not to the yoke of the Judaizers and really to tr- and truly to have nothing to do with these false teachers. Don't give them an ear. Don't give them the opportunity. Certainly do not give them a position in which to speak authoritatively. And, and that is because uh, these Galatian believers, the ones who have faith in Christ, are not children of the slave, but they are the children of promise. Faith in Christ does not enslave us into some twisted order of trying to do good deeds to bring about God's good pleasure in our lives. Faith in Christ actually releases us from the burden of the law because we have now been justified by Jesus. In our final verse this morning, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could continue to somehow try to self-justify ourselves before him. Y'all, if we could somehow justify ourselves before, before Christ, if we could do it of our own deeds, if we could somehow, outside of Jesus, inherit eternal life on the basis of what we've done, then there would have been no need for Jesus to have died. We are brought in by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he did not break the shackles off of our hands and our feet so that we could run right back to the jailer or put ourselves back into chains. He set us free for the sake of freedom. So if you are in Christ, if you are a professing believer, let me exhort you and encourage you this morning to live in that freedom. Stop keeping unnecessary burdens upon yourself and upon your family, upon those you are in relationship with. You are under grace. You are free. You're free from the requirements of the law. You're free from the eternal consequences of your sin. You're free, no longer a slave, but now an adopted child of God, Christian. You will have trials and tribulations in this life. I'm not saying that things get easy because you're free. But our trials and tribulations, because we have set free, been set free, I believe, have right perspective now. Romans 8, 18, Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the child of God, this is your inheritance, freedom, life, and a coming glory that doesn't compare with present day sufferings. Submit yourselves to Christ rather than to a yoke of slavery. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus said the words, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What did he say about his yoke? He said, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy over our lives. We thank you, God, that you have not set us free to go on and try to self-justify ourselves. But Lord, you've set us free truly to be your children, to be in right relationship with you, to be justified before you by the blood of your Son. Lord, I pray right now that if anybody in here is somehow seeking to self-justify themselves, Lord, even, even if that is a, a hidden thing of my own heart, I pray that you would remove that from them. Lord, that they would see that you're not pleased with them because they are a good person any more than I am pleased with Samuel based on what he has done or not done. For Lord, just as Samuel is my child, regardless of what he does, Lord, we are your children on the basis of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. It baffles me, Lord, that you would look upon sinners such as, such as us and would choose to save us. But that is how wonderful and how marvelous your mercy and love is for us. Lord, I pray in this room that as we uh, partake of communion in the next few moments, as we go from this place, Lord, I pray that we would leave this place not as, not as people who feel burdened down by the law, or we, would feel, we wouldn't feel as though we are uh, somehow have had more weight heaped upon us. Oh, now, Lord, I must live in freedom. Oh, no. But, Lord, that we would live as your children, knowing that our Father, on the basis of his grace, is pleased with us in Christ. You truly do love us. Not of ourselves, not something we could have done to gain it or earn it, but Lord, you truly do love us. Despite us, regardless of us, you love us. Thank you. Lord, the proof of your love is in the cross where you sent your only son to die so that sinners such as me, such as I, such as us, would be saved. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you for his blood shed upon it, that in it we have life, life eternal. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.